we are walking through, we're launching into this series we're calling We. We, by the way, is juxtaposed to another word that ends with E. It's the word me. Uh, it's a word we, we don't have a hard time thinking about, right? Um, me is where we begin. That is where every one of us begin. It is where our journey always starts. And yet I, I'd like to propose that the beautiful thing about our faith, and we might be on, on any place, we, we might be in a place where we might even say we're not on a faith journey. We're on a journey and we're trying to, we're figuring out if faith is a part of it. We might be that place. We might be in a place where we've been on this faith journey for a number of years, perhaps even decades for some time now. And wherever we might be on that spectrum, I know this, I can, I can assure you that every single one of us has a unique story. There is not one of us in this room, in this house, who, is, who does not have a unique story. Our dynamics are unique. The, the circumstances in which we were raised were unique. The environments, the culture, the, the pain points, the struggles. And what's also unique, and this is what's amazing, is that Jesus doesn't change who he is. But he does meet us all exactly where we're at. He meets each one of us in the middle of our own circumstances, our own challenges, our own issues. That is his promise. It is what he does, and he loves to do it. But I'd like to suggest that a lot of times, and I'd like to say that it's it's a guarantee, actually. Inevitably, faith in Jesus will challenge us to move from a me-oriented way of life to a we mindset. That he will meet us right where we're at, no question about it. But as he meets us, and it might be over a, 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 a... Number of months or years or weeks or however it might be. It might be hours, it might be days. We don't know exactly how he works this out in our own lives. But we know one thing. We know that Jesus loves to take us in our personal issues and our struggles. He meets us right there. He has grace and love and, and mercy for us. And then he asks us, inevitably, he will invite us to shift out of a mindset that is solely about me. And to move into a mindset that is about we. Is willing to commit to a local church. A community that calls on his name. And one that partners with other people. Does not seek to live this out as a lone ranger. That is, that is the, the theme we're going to explore here. Different angles each week. This weekend and two more. This this morning, you may have noticed we're calling this theme, this, this message we're going to sit with, we are bigger than me. What does that mean? Well, it speaks to the reality that we can do together far more than we could ever do alone. Now, we are bigger than me. It, it speaks to the truth that together we can do far more good than any one of us can do on our own. And this idea... This idea is not, uh, it's not simply something that we uh, experience in a faith community. We see this play out in every other sector of life. We know this to be true. Inherently, we see this. We see this, we see this in our work environments, that when, when in a work environment is to working together and each member is for something greater than themselves, that is a work environment that we look forward to working in. 
but a work environment in which we feel like we have to gird ourselves to protect and defend ourselves because everyone else is out for me is a work environment we actually struggle through. We know this. We know, we know, we know we have seen perhaps a group of people, a team, how how beautiful it is when a team is able to work synergistically. We see it. Perhaps maybe in the Olympics, we see when teams come together and there's something majestic about a group of people looking like a single unit. That is what it means to be uh, synergized, by the way. That it looks like one unit, but upon closer inspection, what we discover is there are many moving pieces all working together congruently. And we see that, and it does strike us. It kind of brings something of an awe over us. You know, in this part of the country, we also have experienced this. The world has been impacted by it. But in technology, we see this play out as well. We see it play out in the sense that there have been certain innovations that have occurred that have changed the way we interact with information and each other. And we know that no matter how much one person is elevated to be revered as the one who has just one more idea, who is credited to having an amazing cultural impact over one company that many of us respect and like, We know it was hundreds, if not thousands of people coming together, innovating and creating technology that did push up against the barrier of limitation and ended up making a mark on history. We know it. If you wouldn't mind indulging me just for a second, I I personally love sports. I know not everyone may, but in this particular point in, in our year, there's one sport in particular I'm very excited about. And there's one team that I cannot wait for June 1st to come. (laughs) Because they have demonstrated this as well. It was actually in 2014, which the the Golden State Warriors, their ownership ended up letting go of a very successful coach. A coach that the players had come to deeply admire and respect, the fan base had rallied around, and they let him go because their goal wasn't simply a measurable success. They wanted the top. They wanted the number one prize. And they thought they needed to make this shift at a coaching level. So they let this man go, and they brought in another man named Steve Kerr. And now it's become folklore, at least within the team dynamics and in sports. But we know that Steve Kerr, that summer of 2014, was, was racking his mind in terms of how he was going to step into this environment. It wasn't altogether hostile, but it wasn't exactly friendly either. And how was he going to meet the demands and the desires of the ownership and at the same time be able to rally a team together? And he came up with a slogan. And he created a video that demonstrated the, the, the capacity of each individual player and the talent and the skill set. And he, he observed the makeup of the team. And he, he, had, he says he had this moment where he realized this is going to be our philosophy. This is how we're going to catapult ourselves up to the very top and we're going to win it all. And he sat in this first team meeting with the, with the group. And he's sitting with these men, these professional basketball players. And he sits them down and he shows them this video highlighting each one, each player, including the bench players and the reserves. And at the end, he ends up having this, this talk with them. And he says to them, he says, this is going to be our philosophy. And this will be how we will win. We have strength in numbers. It's no longer about who will take the last shot. It's about who is open to take the last shot. 
It's no longer about who will start and who will not, who will come off the bench and who will not. No, no, no. Every single one of us are going to make a sacrifice because our strength is not in one individual player. It's in the ability to work together. Our strength is in the depth, in the numbers of our team. Now he jokingly said in an interview, you know, if had I known they were going to put that everywhere on billboards and on shirts and on hats, man, I would have trademarked it, you know? (laughs) That would have been, gosh, that was supposed to be a private conversation. But it became a rally. And we saw it. It's hard to believe that was only three years ago. And we saw it. It was more than a slogan. It united a team. And it catapulted them. To something that hadn't happened in 40 years. It was amazing. And it's about to happen again, I think. But <laughs> we see this everywhere. We see this in hospitals. We see this when some patients on, in the surgery table. And no person in that room has too small of a role. Every single person needs to know exactly what they're doing. They need to do it, not for themselves, but for the patient. We know that every single one working together is what ensures or at least gives the highest possibility for that procedure to succeed. We see it in every other area of life. And if this is the case in every other area of life, then then it is certainly true when it comes to our faith. That he invites us, listen, he invites us to consider what it might look like for us to commit ourselves to a local expression of his grace and his mercy and his love. The church, not the universal, the local. Each one of us deciding we happen to find ourselves in this one. It doesn't have to be this one. But I'd like to suggest that Jesus will always ask us and move us to a place of saying, this is my home. And my journey is something I will seek to live out as our journey. Together. We are bigger than me. We are able to do far greater good together than we could ever do on our own. Now, I understand this, on the other hand, may strike some of us as a threat. It might threaten perhaps our sense of individuality, our creativity, our uniqueness, our ability to be different than others. We might be concerned about that. Others of us, we might have deeper concerns. We might have a concern around the reality that we have been a part of a faith community in our past. And we have experienced not something that was actually healthy and loving and gracious, but we have experienced pain. We've been wounded. And to hear this theme, to hear this word, might echo within the chambers of our soul something of, resistance because that wound is loud and maybe it hasn't healed altogether and it prevents us it obstructs us from really ever really going to a place of trusting and of jumping in and of being a part of something bigger than ourselves and what we see throughout human history is that God God is gracious enough and loving enough to meet us exactly where we're at, but because of his love and his grace for us, he will, he will seek to move us to a place of where healing will occur relationally. And where we will find not just acceptance in him, but in each other as we call on him.
This is the beauty of what he longs to do in our community, in any community that calls on his name. But I think the early church modeled this really well. And when we read the book of Acts, we, what we see is we see an account of the first century church working this out in real time. And it's messy. It's not always clean cut. Oh, but it's beautiful because where God is involved, you see something greater than each individual person. And the account we're going to look at is found in Acts 4. But before we jump into it, I just want to kind of set the table in terms of the context. See, what, what happens in this account is that there's a man named Peter and a man named John. They were both part of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And after Jesus had died on the cross and resurrected, he came back and he asked them to speak about him. And so they did that. They, they started speaking about him in the temple in Jerusalem. And Peter and John would make their way into the temple courts and they would speak about Jesus. And on the way, we're told that one of these mornings, as they were making their way into the temple courts, they saw a man outside the temple courts on the wall. And he was begging. He was sitting down. He was unable to move. He was lame. And he was, he was asking alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And we're told that Peter, in this one instance, ends up walking by him. And this man addresses Peter and asks for money. And Peter looks at him intently. And he looks at him and he says this word, this, this phrase that now we, some of us may be more familiar with than others. He says to the, to the man, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I will give you. And then he looks at him and he says, so now I tell you to rise in the name of Jesus Christ. And he walks over to the man and he hands him his arm and he picks him up and the scriptures don't qualify it. They don't overly explain it. They just say it as a matter of fact that as Peter is helping this man up, something happens within the man's knees and ankles. They become strengthened and all of a sudden a man who could not walk is now able to walk. And a miracle happens. No explanation. It just does. Now, if we could imagine what it's like to recover from an ailment, we might be touching on the tip of the iceberg of what it might be like to recover from a lifelong incapacity to move. Ah, oh, this man was ecstatic. He didn't keep this quiet. He entered the temple courts overjoyed. So overjoyed that people started to recognize him as the man who was begging outside the temple courts. They started recognizing him. The scriptures say he was over 40 years old. There was no mistaking it. This is the man. They start asking him, are you him? He says, this is me. I'm walking now. How did that happen? He starts pointing to Peter and John. They're the ones. He starts giving them credit. And people start crowding Peter and John. And they start looking at Peter in a certain way. They start looking at him as something special. And they start looking at him as the miracle worker. And as a sign of maturity, Peter ends up feeling very uncomfortable with this. And he, he stops the crowd calls in his own way a timeout and he says, listen, no, 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 timeout. Just so we understand each other, I wasn't the one. Don't look at me that way. I'm just like you. I wasn't the one who healed this man. I want to tell you who did. His name is Jesus. He happened to use my words to heal this man, but it was Jesus who healed this man. And just so we're on, since we're on the topic of Jesus, and then he goes on and he speaks of Jesus, the Messiah. People start being open and receptive to this message. He uses his opportunity to speak about Jesus. People start asking, how can we become a part of this movement of God? And everyone is ecstatic. There's energy in the temple. 
And everyone is very happy and receptive and open except for the temple leaders. They see this as a threat to their power and as a threat to their ability, their authority. So they arrest Peter and John, afraid to harm them physically because if they do, the crowd would go ballistic. And so they plot. As Peter and John are arrested and sequestered aside, we see that they plot together and ask them to put this up there. In Acts 4, 17, we're told that in order that it may spread no further among the people, they said amongst each other, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they call them and charge them to speak, to not, not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they plot together. What shall we do? We can't harm them. So what do we do? We're going to intimidate them. So they come out. They get Peter and John. Now listen. Yeah, we, we know the commotion. We know what's going on. Listen, stop talking about Jesus. You, stop it. And we're not messing around. It's making us uncomfortable. It's causing a ruckus. It's not good. So we forbid you from mentioning his name or speaking or teaching in it. Stop it. Peter and James, confronted with men who not only have religious power, but also political power, aren't as amiable as they would like. They go back home, and if we open up our handout, we'll step right into this passage together. And we're told in Acts 4, 23, that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. This, by the way, is worth noting. It's worth noting because you know what they didn't do? They didn't isolate. They didn't deny what happened. They didn't pretend as if it was no big deal that it would go away. And why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because the man who came back to his friends to tell them what just happened is a man who was fiercely independent. A grown man, a fisherman by trade. Who when Jesus met him, he didn't follow anybody. He did what he wanted to do. And over time, in relationship with Jesus, Jesus turned him and softened him. And on the other side of a failure Peter had, Jesus tenderly restored him. And the first thing he did to Peter, on the other side of his failure, instead of pushing Peter away and, and casting him out, he brought him in. And he said, Peter, now, will you, will you carry out my role for you? in this community. Will you make it about we? So this in itself was a huge deal. Peter and John went back and they told the friends what reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Their reaction, the community's reaction, is otherworldly. But we get the sense the scriptures ask us to see ourselves in this response. Look at what they do. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage, that is all the nations, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know what they just did? They did something that um, we would, uh, it would be worth us paying attention to. They hear the news of what happened to two members of their community, Peter and John, two, over 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, in this small, small place in the world. And what do they do? They see this not as their own contained situation. 
they turn it and they connect it to something bigger that God is doing. They take their private community struggle. Two members of it have a struggle. Resistance point. What do they do? They connect it. God of the world. Of the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. Will you hear us? And they quote Psalm 2. Why? Because they don't see their situation as disconnected from what God is doing in their world. They see it intimately tied together. Do you see that? They respond with a high degree of confidence that their story is not only their story, it's connected to God's story for humanity. And we see this. They have a picture of what it is like to be connected to what God is doing. Why? Because they have connected themselves to Jesus. In verse 27, we're told, Truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What does that mean? And basically they're saying, we know Jesus had to die on the cross. It was no accident. It was all part of your plan. And we know he had to do it through the political system and the different systems that were already in place in our society. We know you were fully aware of this. But we also know that's not the end of the story. And now, verse 29, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word, your word, with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We have become convinced that you're on the move through this man, Jesus. And we have not just become convinced of it. We're joining in what you're doing through Jesus. We are an expression of what you are doing through Jesus. And so we ask you, God, will you help us carry out what you are doing through Jesus? This is much bigger than Peter and John. We're told in verse 31 that when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. It's not what normally happens at prayer gatherings. It doesn't happen every day. But we are told something happens and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There was an undeniable evidence of God moving in their midst. If you see it, their concern for the mission that God was on, gave them the courage to ask for boldness. And they entered, listen, they entered this time in prayer together, having been intimidated, having been threatened. And they step out with courage, with passion, and with boldness. They step in afraid. They step out confident. And if God was on the move, in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago through this small community of faith. We would be mistaken if we thought that that is where God's movement stopped. We'd be more accurate to describe it as the starting point of God's movement. Because when Jesus spoke to the disciples, he said, I want you to speak about me in Judea, in Samaria, in the outer reaches of the world. And the great news about that is that San Francisco is included in the outer reaches of the world. We are connected 
to what God is doing. Because God is on a mission through this man named Jesus. And he is moving through any community that calls on his name. Our story becomes a part of his story. And we start to discover when we do this, you know what we start to discover? We are bigger than me. And together we are able to do far greater good than we could ever do alone. This, this is not something disconnected from us. We might be looking at this and this account might mean nothing to us. If we do not see ourselves in this story. But in the moments we have remaining, I'd like to consider what it would look like for us to consider ourselves in this account. How, if this was true in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, where none of us would have ever known about this small incident, can it actually mean that our incidents aren't small and they are connected to something bigger? And can it actually mean that God is equally interested to move through our community in a city such as ours, so beautiful, that impacts more than just the city wall, the city limits? And what happens in the city actually impacts the culture at large. In fact, it impacts the world. Could it be that God is asking us to make the shift to recognize he is up to something far greater than our own private lives. See, if this is true, what does this community model to us? It models a couple things. I'm just going to put this up there. It models that the size of, and I put this in very personal terms because I know some of us write these down, but it means that the size of my mission determines my need for a we mindset. The size of my mission will determine my need for a we mindset. Every one of us start with a, degree, a, a pain point, something that some of us, it is something we're trying to overcome. It's something we're trying to heal from. It's something we're trying to endure. And that is very true. It is the beginning point. And he desires that. And perhaps and we, may, we may even think, some of us, I don't even know what my mission is. But I'll tell you what, something is driving us. Something is motivating us. There is something within us that is compelling us to move forward one step at a time. And so we may not have clarity on it, but there is something that is driving our decisions. And it, it's been coined that every one of us has a mission, whether we know it or not. But the size of that mission will determine our need. I grant to you that if the size of my mission is contained to my personal private life, that there is very little need for a we. We can do that alone. And some of us have been very good at doing it alone. But I can't help but think of the woman at the well. It's an account found in John 4 in which Jesus meets this woman at high noon at the local well. And it's the hottest part of the day. And this woman goes to this well because she's ostracized from the rest of her community. She's marginalized. She's not part of the community anymore. So she, but she thirsts still. So she needs water. She goes to the well at noon. Jesus meets her there. And Jesus meets her right where she's at and asks her for a cup of water. She pushes back and says, wait a minute, you're, first of all, you're a man. Secondly, you're a Jewish. I'm Samaritan. We're like oil and water, you and I. And Jesus breaks through the barriers and he says to her, listen, yes, this is true. But if you, if you drink this water here, physical of the water, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give to you, you will no longer thirst. He meets her right where she is in need. And it's up to this point, it's all about him and her. And she says, what any of us would say when we connect the dots, she says, if that's the case, 
Give me that water every day. I want that water. This is going to make me thirsty, but yours isn't. Okay, I'm ready. What do I? Give me the water. And you know what the first thing Jesus does off of that? He says, okay, go get your husband. Because in order for you to receive the healing touch that I have for you, we have to talk about your relationships. And we have to talk about the people in your life. And we have to talk about how you've walked this out. And I'm not looking to expose you. I'm not looking to ashamed, drag you through the coals. No, 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 no. I'm not looking to do that. I'm looking to heal it. So you go bring your husband. And you know what begins as a conversation between a woman who has been ostracized and marginalized and rejected by her community ends with a woman running back into her community, telling everybody who has rejected her about this man named Jesus. And this crowd is so moved by what has occurred within her that they say, if that is true for you, then we want to see him for ourselves. And what began as a private, confidential conversation becomes a community event. See that? Because you know what? God will ask us, yes, I will meet your need. He will, and he is so gracious, he will do it. But you know what then he asks us? <coughs> you who have been forgiven, will you forgive? It's almost as if he will deposit names into us. You who have received grace, will you give grace to others? You who have received mercy, will you be merciful? Can we talk about can, 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 now that, now that I, you understand that I'm embracing you, I'm not rejecting you, will you now adopt my mission for you? It's a little bit bigger than you. It's a little bit bigger. It, 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 it encompasses your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. It encompasses the city. It encompasses the Bay Area. It encompasses perhaps uh, this part of California. It encompasses maybe this country. Uh, why don't we just discuss this generation? Can you see my heart? This is what God asks us. Because the minute we start to grapple and grip, be gripped by his mission, not just for us, you know what we start to discover? We need, we need each other. And we start to recognize we can do far greater good than we could ever do alone. This is what the community modeled. If they modeled that, you know what it also modeled? It modeled that my impact is directly connected to my willingness to move from me to we. My impact, my mark in this world, our mark, is directly connected to our willingness, not our gift set, not our skills, not our passions or our dreams, those are valid, but it is our willingness to say, it's no longer just about me, it's about we. What does this look like? How does this play out in everyday life? Well, some of us, we have our story. Uh, many of us have our story of how this might play out. All I can do is share from my story. And my story, it, it begins really with my father's story. See, my dad was uh, and still is a painter by trade. He was a laborer. And 
growing up, he, they came, our family came to a point where he decided he, they needed a little bit more income. And so he, he sought for different ways of creating a different revenue stream. And he ended up getting connected to a, a small group of, of businessmen. And one of them ended up saying, you know what, why don't we venture out and create this little small business? And together they did. And he ends up starting to work hard, in the, not just throughout the day, but in the evenings as well. And he, he would work with this, this man he got to know rather well. And this man ends up using this opportunity to share his faith with my father. Now, my dad and our family, we, never, we didn't grow up going to church. It wasn't a thing we did. Our church was uh, football. And it was in the 80s, and so church was good, you know. Um, and I remember... Him, him walking through this. I never really met this man. I only heard about him. But he would share his faith with my dad. My dad wasn't necessarily open at first, but he respected this man. This man not just spoke about Jesus. He tried to live his faith out in a way that my father could observe it. And over a period of months and years, he started talking about, you know, he has this, this, this gathering he goes to where he prays with other guys and they talk about life together. And he has this community that he's involved in. And he ended up moving up north to Sacramento. But they still kept, they still connected, they still discussed, and he still shared his faith. And there was this one period in which my, my father watched him walk through a rather tragic season of his life. Because month one, there was this period in which his wife, and both of them had three sons, but his wife got diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And in three months, she passed away. And my father watched this man walk through that. And he watched as he started hearing about a group of people gathering around and praying for him. And started seeing how people would gather around and help take care of his sons. And meals were being dropped off. And he would start hearing about this. And he would start hearing about the way people took on the burden of the family together. And he witnessed and he watched. More than the community, he watched this man. And it was between six months to a year later, my dad ended up asking him, listen, I want, you, I want to ask you something. It's a little personal, but I want to ask you, how is it possible that the losing of your wife didn't just completely break you, man? This man ends up saying to my father, listen, I've told you about Jesus before. And I can tell you now that his community, the community that I'm a part of, carried me, sustained me. My faith gives me confidence that my children will be okay, that my wife will be someone I will see once again, and that God has a plan for us that is good. He noticed perhaps my dad was rocked by that, and so he says, and listen, when I lived in the Bay Area, I used to go to this church. I really recommend it. It's called Cornerstone. It's in San Francisco. And it's springtime, so they have this presentation. Why don't you go check it out? It's pretty, it's pretty good. And my dad and my mom came, and they sat upstairs in the balcony. And they, impact, they, 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 they saw what happened on this stage, and they were so impacted by it. My dad decided, I'm going to go back. So my mom and dad came back the next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. And I started noticing I was the only one on the couch watching the games. <laughs> So I asked him, Dad, what's up? What are you doing? He says, well, son, I like the music. <laughs> and I really like the pastor. You should come. Business partner of my father had no idea 
the kid that was asking his dad that was a rebellious teenager who needed to see a man model what it was like to admit weakness and come out stronger for it. I saw my father, who I had known my entire life really well, start to become tender and a shift started to occur within him. And I thought, man, if this is the case, if this is what's happening, I need to check that out. And here we are. It's 2017. And any good that God has ever done through my life or through the life of my father, I'll tell you what, that business partner may not know it, but he is intimately connected with it. You know why? Because it's in, in his moment of deepest need, of tragedy and crisis and loss, he refused to become all about me. And because he had cultivated a life of being involved with others, it was about we. And the community rallied around him, and unbeknownst to him, there was somebody watching. And because of that, his impact, well, it's yet, it's yet to end. It is catapulted. It's an amazing thing what happens to us. Together we can do far greater good than we could ever do alone. If that's the case, you know what we also see in this community? That God loves to empower. He loves to empower us when we shift out of a me mindset into one that says it's all about we. It's about what you're doing through us. And this is the reality. God loves to empower us. He does. When we shift from me to we. And this is what I find remarkable. Peter and John didn't say, can you pray for me? You know what they said? Your burden, the community said, your burden is our burden. Why? Because your mission is the mission of Jesus and so is ours. Our mission is what God's mission is and so it's us together. They modeled when one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. When one succeeds, all succeed. When one is hurt, all are hurting. And so together, what do they do? They circled up and they prayed to God for each other. They modeled what it was like. And you know what happened? God showed up. He showed up. What would it look like if we decided each individually to say, you know what? I'm going to seek to live this personal faith out with others. I'm going to cultivate friendships. I'm going to get involved in small group. I'm going to get involved in this community. I'm going to invite others in and I'm going to be a part of others. And it's going to be about we. Oh, what a great thing God could do in this point in human history. I wonder what son, what daughter, what niece, what nephew, co-worker, what family member. His life is going to be completely altered for good. Because each of us said, I'm moving out of me. I'm joining up with others. This is my home. And God, it's about we. What are you going to do through us? In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving, have our closing song. I'd love to pray. Ask for his blessing. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace that meets us right where we're at. Thank you for your love that longs to minister to the deepest needs of our soul. Thank you that you never leave us alone. Thank you that you invite us to be a part of your family, the local church expression of your grace. Would we do greater things together?
than we could ever do alone because we joined in your mission. And you're on the move in this city. You're on the move in our families, in our friendships, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. Oh, do the great thing you want to do, Lord. In Jesus' name.